Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Okay, so let's talk today about the challenges in implementing the Federal Family First Act. Let me read my blog first. In our latest webinar, Kirsten Anderson, who's the executive director of Aspire Minnesota, made a complex Family First Prevention Services Act, or FFPSA, comprehensible to ordinary people. Fundamentally, FFPSA, I'm going to call it the Family First Act, redirects federal Title IV-E funding, which has been the main source of funding for foster care, from deep end to prevention services. Now, the Casey Family Programs Foundation helped design and promoted this act along with the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which is related. Among other problems, the Family First Act defunds residential treatment centers, which are, for some kids, the only practical or workable option. It also assumes that abusive parents are going to just accept prevention services. But the uptake of these kind of services in other voluntary child protection programs, like Family Assessment in Minnesota, has been quite low. In addition, the federal clearinghouse that was set up to determine eligibility for Family First, for funding from Family First, is only approving evidence-based services, and that rules out culturally specific programs. I'll say more about that later. So despite these issues, Casey has lobbied against fine-tuning Family First, thereby, thereby reinforcing its reputation as an institution that is removed from the operating realities of child welfare and not very concerned about the problems that its legislation creates. So that's our blog for today. Let me start by saying that um, Family First uh, is generally described as the most significant child welfare legislation since the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act of 1988, usually known as CAPTA. Like all legislation of this size, it took years to pass, and its intention is to shift federal child welfare funding, which comes primarily from Title IV-E of the Social Security Act, from the deep end of the services continuum to prevention and early intervention services. This sounds like a totally reasonable, it's about time thing to do, doesn't it? But let's look at it a little more closely because there are several features of the act and some underlying assumptions that are in conflict with its intended results. 
First, let me give you a little background that the prime movers of this bill are the Annie E. Casey Foundation and the Casey Family Programs Foundation. These are two of five Casey Foundations, and if you're not aware, Casey is the founding family of United Parcel Services. So there are five foundations with lots of money in them. And these Casey Foundations, uh, these two in particular, have invested the earnings from their endowments primarily, and in the case of Casey Family Programs, exclusively in child welfare. The one data point I have been able to find is from an annual report about 10 years ago when Casey Family said their endowment was $2 billion. So even if they earned nothing in the intervening years on that endowment, they would throw off about $100 million a year in cash by distributing the 5% of its funds that's required by the federal government. And by investing all of these resources in state and county child welfare programs, Casey Family has become the primary influences of child welfare policy in the United States, even without taking into account the efforts of Annie E. Casey and the other Casey Foundations, which are reportedly larger. The family's first act should be considered in the context of another Casey Family initiative known as Differential Response or in Minnesota as Family Assessment. So those are the two names, Differential Response Generally, Family Assessment in Minnesota. And I've written and talked extensively about family assessment elsewhere, so I'm just going to give you enough minimum background here to, to follow the rest of the conversation. Family assessment promotes practices that we and many other professionals in the field have believed put children at high risk and in some cases get them harmed and killed. And chief among these practices are interviewing children in front of the adults in the household during the initial child protection visit, something which most people agree doesn't make sense, uh, giving parents and other household members advance notice of the first child protection visit, which of course gives them time to coach and intimidate the children so that they don't say anything uh, that they, the adults don't want them to say to the child protection worker, uh, at deliberately not doing fact-finding, uh, and finally not recording what was discovered in case notes so that if there's a future worker who gets a subsequent report, they will be operating blind. So there was an excellent meta-analysis of differential response done by Catherine Piper, which can be found on our website. And she found that as of 2019, 12 of the 34 states that had implemented differential response had either temporarily or permanently ended the program, uh, primarily because of the uh, inability to engage parents and because of the high risk. And in addition, six states permanently ended the program due to high-profile child murders, in the case of Massachusetts, six in one year. Among the reasons uh, for this is that differential response is based on the incorrect assumption that parents will voluntarily engage in prevention services. In reality, Piper found that the uptake of these services was quite low. And the logic of this is pretty simple. Child protection worker shows up at the door and says, hey, would you like child protection services help? And the answer is generally, hell no. And we demonstrated this ourselves in a research study that we helped with in 2014, led by the Institute of Child Development, which is at the University of Minnesota. And in this study, which produced two papers that are also on our website, we sampled Hennepin County, Minnesota cases and found, among other things, that 62% of family assessment cases were closed within three months at the request of the parents. 
As this suggests, family assessment has become virtually voluntary and it wasn't doing its job of protecting children. In addition, Piper found that no more than one-third of cases can safely put into a differential response or family assessment program. Uh, otherwise, you're putting high-risk cases, high-risk children in low-risk uh, program. And Minnesota is still placing 60% or more, or more of its cases in family assessment, which means that thousands of children in Minnesota every year who are in high-risk situations are also being placed in a program for low-risk cases. So, family assessment in some hasn't delivered on two of its core promises, which were to do a better job of engaging parents and to keep children safe. So now returning to the questions around the Family First Act with this background, for a thorough analysis of its impact on residential treatment and group homes, we recommend that you read the latest article of the Child Welfare Monitor, which is a publication written by Marie Cohen and which you can find at childwelfaremonitor.org. If you haven't read the Child Welfare Monitor in the past and have any interest in child welfare issues, we recommend you subscribe to it. Cohen researches every issue thoroughly, takes a very professional, data-based, research-based approach to every topic. In this article, among other things, Cohen explains one unintended consequence of the Family First Act that is so complex that I only understand it at the time I'm reading it. But the gist is that an existing provision in Medicaid prevents or prohibits residential treatment centers from getting Medicaid reimbursement under Families First. So that makes residential treatment centers' financial models untenable. Despite this and other problems, Casey reported that the Casey Family Program's Executive Director, Robert Bell, recently testified in Congress about the act and encouraged them to resist any efforts to modify it. Now, this reflects a bias by Casey and many progressives in child welfare that group homes and residential treatment centers are bad, they're not appropriate for children because they remove children from their families and communities. But I myself have worked with runaways and street youth, and in my experience, there are some children and youth who need the structure that residential treatment and group homes provide if they are ever going to get well and be able to live independent lives. The alternative is to say, oh, we don't want residential treatment or group homes, and then to put them through a series of foster homes that they blow out of, and they end up on the street where they are at the highest possible risk of being sex trafficked or otherwise permanently harmed. In some cases, and these are wonderful, in highly skilled and appropriately funded treatment foster care, they can work with some of the same youth. But, of course, we haven't funded that service either, and it doesn't work for everyone. But we should really look at bringing back treatment foster care and funding it appropriately because that is a great alternative to more structured settings, keeps kids in the community in a more normal setting. Now, another problem with the Family First Act is that the shift from deep end funding to prevention services is moving at a very slow pace. The Act created a big clearinghouse to vet services that would be eligible for funding under the Act. So now that the Act is underway and they have cut off, as of September 30th this year, funding to residential treatment centers and group homes, there's not much to replace it. Uh, the clearinghouse is also reviewing programs very slowly and emphasizing a clinical approach, because it's emphasizing a clinical approach, which means they are only approving evidence-based practices. So, promising solutions that would help achieve the purpose of the Act 
for example, cultural navigators, are off the table in terms of getting funded under the Act. Now, I've had some experience helping to implement a cultural navigator program myself, and I think it is, I've come to think of it as an indispensable part of the service array. Cultural navigators are people from the particular cultural community who help families who have gotten ensnared in child protection to work their case and get out of the system so they don't become lifers. This can be just simply saying, look, you, you know, these are certain things you have to do in ways that a caseworker might not quite get away with. Um, you've got to show up at court on time. You've got to work your case plan. You've got to go to rehab if you want your kids back. And, and it works. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really impressive to see how this can help families to make their kids safer but also stay out of permanent relationship with child protection. So, in addition, uh, this, this clearinghouse um, doesn't work for culturally specific or culturally informed programs because they generally aren't the objects of mainstream research. People don't get money to do research on these very niche programs, and also many of them are just too small. They're implemented on too small of a scale to be effectively studied. So the net result is that we don't have culturally informed or culturally specific programs. We don't include promising programs. And all we're going to have is essentially white majority based programs that are evidence based but don't reach many of the populations that are, you know, disproportionately in the system. So the sum is that the Family First Act is based on incorrect assumptions about how people behave when they're offered voluntary child protection services. It's not connected with solid research or the experience of professionals who are on the ground. And it's wiping out a critical segment of the child welfare service array. So overall, prevention services are not likely to be accessed in the way that the bill promoters anticipate. And this will ultimately contribute to more children being harmed and killed. The core problem here, the fundamental problem, is that Casey Family Programs and Casey uh, Foundations in general, specifically uh, Casey Family though, and uh, is not, they are not in any way accountable to the child welfare field or to the public or to government. Marie Cohen characterizes them, and in our opinion, fairly as an elite group that is disconnected from the impact of their work, and I personally would add that they are living inside their own heads and either are oblivious to or just simply don't care about the havoc that they are creating. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.